0: I'm Kristen Marshand, and this is The Opiongo Line, a podcast dedicated to investigating, preserving, and promoting the unique heritage and distinctive culture of the Upper Madawaska and Opiongo River Valleys. Today, we have a unique show that will take you back some 50 or 60 years to the streets of Barry's Bay and its surrounding countryside. Our show is called The Boys of Summer, and it's made up of four personal essays, memoirs if you like, all written by Barry Conway about his summers growing up in Barry's Bay during the 1960s and early 1970s. In September 1960, little six-year-old Barry walked nervously down what was then called the Boy Street in Barry's Bay, later to be officially named Bay Street. Near St. Hedwig's Roman Catholic Church, he entered St. Joseph's primary school and thus began grade one. Two years later, he was engulfed, as were the rest of his schoolmates, and indeed the entire world, in something called the Cuban Missile Crisis. By October 1962, the Americans and Russians were at each other's throats, and the world held its breath. Everyone hoped that this Mexican standoff might not turn into the complete nuclear annihilation of the earth, as we then knew it. All over Canada, school children began to train for their imminent doom, they practice an in-class drill, learning how to duck and cover under their nearest classmate's desk. That is, whenever their teachers unexpectedly shouted and then pointed to an imaginary blinding flash outside the windows. It was the play-acting moment that an atomic bomb had been surely dropped right then and there in the schoolyard, smack dab in front of St. Hedwig's Church. Why anyone would want to set off a mushroom cloud beside a country church in the middle of nowhere was never fully explained. But remember, back then, it was a time when children were to be seen and not heard, to be infinitely obedient and eternally mindful of their manners, and certainly not encouraged to question their teacher's curious whims or moral authority. It was a time when all school children were expected to do or die. And the Sisters of St. Joseph's Primary School meant that literally in October 1962. So, our budding memoirist, Little Barry, did as he was told and jumped like a jackrabbit across the aisle in his classroom. He huddled under the closest desk any time his teacher ran that atomic bomb drill, which was usually at least once a week. Dutifully, he hunkered down, yet somehow he failed to quiver like any normal church mouse nor was he overcome with thoughts of his own mortality. Rather, he seemed to have no fear of his personal atomic self-destruction at all. Indeed, he kept wondering, quietly, to himself, all through the drill, what kind of superpower did those spindly desk legs he was wedged under possess? How could they protect him from a nuclear blast, if not an alien ray gun? It was a vexing scientific conundrum that would last long after the Cuban Missile Crisis. He never did find any good answer to it, at least not in the many comic books he continued reading throughout his boyhood. Yet by June 1973, more than ten years later, those same students of St. Joseph's Primary, all thoroughly trained to survive a nuclear blast, were graduating from Madawaska Valley District High School in Barry's Bay. But by then, as anyone who knew his grade one classmates could see, they had all changed, utterly. As MVDHS graduates, they no longer responded well to being told what to do by their so-called betters, those leaders of moral authority whom they had once followed like little ducklings. No, they had discovered minds of their own and were now prone to think, believe, and choose how to live their lives according to their own whims and moral authority. For more than a decade since the Cuban Missile Crisis, they had watched a world continually going mad. The nightly news was full of political assassinations, riots, rebellions, war, social unrest, if not downright revolution. They also saw their own little village of Barry's Bay and surrounding countryside change radically during those turbulent times. There was even no more Girl's Street or Boy Street. In fact, Many of Barry's peers now had a very different worldview than their parents. As a class, they all believed they better understood their parents who had lived through their own mad chaotic times, namely the Great Depression and the Second World War. Still, to be a young boy in those glorious summers back in the 1960s and early 1970s it meant constantly living with the giddy, unrestrained joy of imagining all sorts of comic book adventures that might lay down those inviting dirt roads that ran through Barry's Bay and surrounding countryside. There was very little local pavement back then and even fewer street signs, for Barry's Bay prior to 1967 was a village where most of the streets had no official name. There was Main Street, the Boy Street, the Girls' Street, and that was about it. Doors were left unlocked, stores took credit on a person's spoken word, kids bought cigarettes for their parents, and most school-aged children were left to look after themselves outdoors all summer long. From the crack of dawn until well past dark, there was a great sense of personal freedom, as long as the boys got their chores done and nobody missed church or swimming lessons. Everyone knew church was there to save your soul, but swimming lessons would save your life. That is, if you ever fell out of a boat. Most boys back then could bank on being dragged along for count as they were roused out of bed on Saturday mornings to be taken fishing by their fathers and uncles. It also meant that local boys during the rest of the week had the freedom to roam carelessly through the unnamed village streets and more often than not, out into the surrounding countryside. A boy and his friends could spend weekday mornings checking out the candy counters at both Jason and Stanley Paul Besky stores. Or they could hang around Bill Hoffman's dairy bar, waiting for Bill to put the run on them. Or they might take their bikes to check out the soda pop selection at Anna Shell gas station. Or maybe Charlie Kitz's Red and White. Then, after dinner, nobody ever called it lunch. Those same boys could head up into the hills to pick blueberries along some hidden meadow or rock outcroppings with burnt-out pines called Shaco's. Or maybe they'd tear off on a hand-me-down bicycle to go screaming off the cliffs at Carson Lake Provincial Park and cannonball into the refreshing Trout Lake water. Or maybe tear down some dusty back road and sneak into an old weathered log barn for a rope swing and somersault into a hayloft. Or maybe walk quietly down some winding paths of cattails and beaver grass to a friend's secret fishing hole. Sometimes it just meant spending the whole day chasing loppy-eared rabbits out Siberia way by the girls' camp. Or down near Little Mexico, gathering empty pop bottles to make pocket chains for chocolate bars and boxes of Cracker Jacks. Sometimes the boys of summer just enjoyed themselves in the twilight after supper, playing a game of stretch, their jack knives, almost stabbing their bare feet. It was a time to talk about how their day had been happily misspent, doing whatever they damned well pleased. They could have spent it down in the pines near the wharf, blowing up frogs with firecrackers, or attempting to fire up their own -own roll-your-own-cigarettes. Or if you fell in with some older boys, maybe they got to watch them pass around an Eaton's or Sears catalog to check out the lingerie section, which back in the day was every pubescent poor boy's answer to Playboy. Meanwhile, the less purient might head off to a little league baseball game, or the younger boys might play Rover Red Rover or hide-and-seek on somebody's back 40. A few of the boys might get busy delivering their evening Ottawa journals or Toronto Star newspapers. They would soon find themselves surrounded by the Twitter of birds deep into the evening songs and responding to the joyful noise of village homes. It was a time when both birds and families eventually would quiet down and settle in for the night. That's when Barry's Bay would be overtaken by a very unique village sound known only to those paper boys, the peculiar sound heard on a warm summer night of old men and old women snoring their exhausted contentment. Upstairs windows were thrown wide open, electric fans were sashaying back and forth, and white sheer curtains would blow gently into the street full of chirping crickets and the mysterious murmur of rustling leaves. Meanwhile, as most of the village slept, other boys would be out and about, often without their parents' knowledge or consent. They'd break curfew and be crawling around on their hands and knees with flashlights, nitpicking the dewy grass on the hunt for dozens of midnight crawlers for fishing or retail sale the very next day. All the while, brilliant starlight reflected on the black moving water beyond the wharf and St. Hedwig's Graveyard. Over the next hour, the boys of summer will take you back to that time, back to those long forgotten summer days and warm nights. You'll hear those sounds from 50 or 60 years ago, if not see those days and nights in your mind's eye. If you listen closely enough to four personal essays, each one rooted in a specific local event. They should all be recognizable to those who grew up in Barry's Bay during that same time, but even to those who never lived in Barry's Bay during the 1960s and 70s, there's something appealing in listening to the joy and horror of boys coming of age anywhere, at any time. Here then are Vickers Creek Morning, Bentley's Winchester, The Acorn Wars, and Stafford Mountain Starlight, all written and read to us today by Barry Conway the producer of the Apiango line, but also one of those boys of summer.
1: There's something to be said for old men who carry vivid memories of themselves as young boys, hidden deep inside and sometimes for 50 years or more. It's as though they were on a long journey, and despite all the getting and spending of their lives, what remains precious to them are those moments of an earlier time and place that haunt them like things found in the bottom of an old fisherman's rucksack, things that were packed in fear of some catastrophic event that might have happened along the way. But that fear was soon forgotten once the journey was undertaken in earnest. A compass a watertight container of matches, an old knife, some tablets to purify swamp water in case of getting lost. All things that were never really needed, as it turned out, because the trip never went that badly. But in finding them again 50 or 60 years later, they do remind an old man of how horrible the consequences of first setting out as a boy might have turned out. Such is the memory I have of Vickers Creek, a place I haven't been to for over 50 years. It's a tiny little creek that runs eastward a few miles northwest of Barry's Bay. The section I knew very well 50 years ago was where Vickers Creek passed through the acreage of an old abandoned farm once owned by the Sabolsky clan, and whose sons and daughters must have decided by the mid-20th century to give up their valiant 19th century effort to turn it into a profitable farm. I assumed all but a few of those original Cebolskys either moved into the nearby village of Barry's Bay, where I was bread and buttered, or as many did in the 20th century, and still do today. They moved away to the city to find jobs and rich urban lives where they could tell their grandchildren of the hard scrabble days back on the farm. And so it was every summer back in the early 1960s, we found our way to Vickers Creek, usually starting in late May, when spring was finally becoming a certainty and a weekend fishing trip wouldn't be ruined by a cold, bitter rain that might last for hours. It was only then, on a warm Saturday afternoon, that me and my three older brothers, Joe, Sean, and Kevin, and their two friends, Peter and Danny Sobolski, would head off to their grandfather's homestead that engulfed the better part of Vickers Creek, Sometimes our mothers, Teresita or Edna, who were also very good friends, would drive us out there in the family car. And at other times, we'd pile onto our bicycles and pedal along the dirt roads out Pog Lake Way before resting those bikes along a broken-down cedar fence. Its posts were weathered blackish-grey and seemingly only held together with thin lines of rusted barbed wire, all broken and curled into threatening loops. Of course, there was also the old farm gate we had to deal with. Everyone knew it was a nuisance to lift and move out of the way. But once inside, an old cart track led about half a mile down. We could hardly wait to walk along its rutted paths, with two muddy grooves twisted all G-ways and never quite parallel, as if badly plowed and forever being encroached on both sides by tall, willowy grass. I remember watching that grass sway back and forth in the wind, making a rustling sound as if paradise itself was calling us. It felt like a place that would hide old ghosts, a place where we could roam unsupervised if we dared. It was a boy's summer paradise. We were as free as the grass itself, sashaying this way and that in the fickle wind. But first, we had to get past that trucking at old gate, It took two or three of us, using all our mighty heft, to push it up and over that lumpy, moist earth, as if that gate itself knew it was the last frontier of civilization, before it grudgingly opened, allowing those wild kids to get beyond the pale and carry out their hell-bent intentions. After we moved that gate just enough to get inside and hide our bikes in the tall grass, we would often catch our breath, before catching that devil-may-care look in each other's eyes. And then we'd all tear off like a gaggle of noisy geese, racing each other down that old cart track to the water's edge of our beloved Vickers Creek. Most times, none of us would stop running until we reached the creek, and then all would suddenly veer off, left or right from where the cart track submerged across the creek and went off somewhere into the wild blue yonder where we dared not go. Rather, we went up and down the teeming waters of Vickers Creek to hunt for just the right tall spindly alder that we could cut down at its base with our jack knives, and then trim and tie an old black fishing line to the smaller, flexible end. Then we'd measure out about ten feet of line, or the length of the alder itself, and tie a hook on one end, and quickly squeeze a dew worm onto that hook, the worms having come along in our pockets or a small, empty Campbell soup can stuffed with moist, green moss." There was always that last difficulty of hooking the damned worms, for they forever squirmed in trepidation of the fate which they seemed to sense. Finally, they just resigned themselves, knowing they would soon come eye to eye with a hungry brook trout. And so we would spend glorious afternoons wandering up and down the fresh, cool, sparkling water of Vickers Creek, either in groups of two or three or often alone, because we knew the other boys would only frustrate our own particular style of fishing, and that would only diminish our chances of landing that big whopper or catching our full count. Though for the life of me, I don't think any kid from Barry's Bay ever knew what count was. That was something only the game warden and our uncles or fathers knew about with any certainty. But as Vickers Creek was on private land, there was never any need to worry about any official count. I'm not even certain, in the scheme of things, which was more important to our sibling rivalries. Catching the biggest fish or catching the most fish. All I know is I was rarely the winner. My older brothers, Joe, Sean, and Kevin, but especially Kevin. He was a consummate fisherman even back then. Or Danny Cebulski. He and Kevin would easily end up winning the day for size and count. The rest of us, we were not so lucky. Or talented, take your pick. It really didn't matter, not to me at least. A day at Vickers Creek was usually paradise itself. It was the best of times, even when that day might start out the worst day possible. Strangely, the worst day for me would be the last weekend in May 1965, as I was nearing the end of grade 5, and was looking forward to turning 11 that summer. Those worst of times had started with the long Victoria Day weekend. It had been one of the warmest, sunniest, long weekends on record. Fishing was back on again in Algonquin Park when our fathers and uncles would usually start loading us up in the family station wagon before sunrise on Saturday mornings and take us up along the Upyongor River into Shirley Lake. But for whatever reason on that last weekend in May, we didn't have to go to Algonquin Park that Saturday. So instead, the boys of summer decided to go out to Vickers Creek. I remember opening the gate and watching my brothers and the Spolsky boys tear off, as usual, down the cart track, yelling and screaming and taunting each other with those sacred taunts of childhood. Last one fishing is a rotten egg. I remember watching and listening until their bobbing heads and shrieking voices sank beneath the distant grass, rolling off down towards the water. I remember just watching the field between us and the wind shifting over that tall grass, moving through the acreage like some invisible hand of God, touching wide swaths, suddenly shifting thousands of green willowy stalks, east and west, north or south, serendipitously, depending on which way God decided to move his huge hand. I remember being mesmerized by that early afternoon wind, feeling the air grow strange around me, changing from an almost imperceptible, warm, ethereal touch to something much cooler, almost menacing, something that gave me goosebumps up and down both of my arms. I looked down the cart road towards the creek, and for some reason I didn't want to go down there that day. I ran instead through the weaving grass, angry at the coolness of its touch as much as I was angry at its fragility, I wanted to cry, but knew that was not what a man would ever do. So I kept running, plowing through the green field, until I escaped its slithering wetness, and I reached the side of a hill where there was no tall grass any more, only a scattered line of young birch trees standing sentry before a darker forest. I remember sitting down beside one of those trees... "'and tearing off a strip of birch bark and twisting it into a cup, "'just as Peter Cebulski, a close friend of my older brother, Sean, "'had taught me to do, telling me it was a good way to get a drink of water "'if I got thirsty while fishing. "'Just scoop up the water in the creek with my homemade birch bark cup,' he said. "'It was how the Indians used to do it when they lived here hundreds of years ago. "'Still angry, I never got to use it that day. "'Instead, I ripped it into pieces and got up and kept running "'further up the hillside until I almost was out of breath.' Then somehow I got entangled in a grove of cedar trees, crawling with mosquitoes and black flies, and rather than be eaten alive, I found my way clear to the top of the hill, and soon found myself on the other side, walking down a strange meadow, surrounded by a hardwood grove, full of dappled light that seemed to shimmer and dance on the forest floor, made from last year's brown autumn leaves. It looked like the back of a huge baby deer. It was a place I had never seen before, and a place that instantly began to wick away my anger over towards the far side of the meadow i could see a rainbow of colors small indefinite things that seemed to flicker in the sunlight i ran as quickly as i could to figure out what i was looking at it wouldn't surprise me at that age if it was some treasure left behind by pirates from hundreds of years ago I ran as fast as I could, dodging little hillocks, clumps of mossy outcroppings, and young saplings, some denuded and ready to bud, others soft-leaved and strangely wrinkled like somebody's grandmother. As I got closer, I saw a ring of green moss, and inside it a more curious collection of wildflowers that I had never seen before. Not only because of their variety, but because of their numbers and vibrant colors. It was as if somebody had intentionally planted them, but I knew that was not possible. Nobody plants wildflowers. That's God's job, and nobody would dare to pretend to do the work of God. I remember standing a few yards from that rainbow of color and wanting to fling myself into it, but I knew better. It was probably wet underneath and could have all manner of broken, rotting wood with spikes and knots that could jab me or rip my clothes or cause all manner of problems with my mother once I got home. So I just slowly kept walking and approached the Ring of Moss with its tremendous bed of wildflowers, as though I were approaching some huge altar in church, waiting for a priest to show up and maybe shush me away. It wasn't until I knelt down, carefully enough to know it wouldn't hurt me or stain my clothes, and yet close enough to the wildflowers, that I only had to reach out to touch them. I remember that moment as if it was yesterday. Somehow, I started thinking of how Bambi would feel, nosing up to those flowers. I remember laughing to myself, wondering if a baby deer might not lean over and nibble on them, thinking they might be something good to eat. So I reached over and plucked something that must have been a trillium. I remember it had three petals, and it was white, like a lily, not a devil's toothbrush, "'or a pink lady slipper, "'or any of the other orange, red, or purple wildflowers "'that were spread out around me "'now that I could see them, all jumbled up, "'like they were a patchwork quilt "'or somebody's coat I'd sometimes see at school, "'made over so many times with different colors "'that it made us all want to get our moms "'to make us one just like it. "'Whatever it was, it was mostly white, like a lily. "'I remember pulling it away from the ground "'and being happy one moment, "'and then as I brought it close, I had no intention of eating it like a fawn. I caught a whiff of its moist fragrance, and without knowing why, I began to cry. Something inside me started to heave up and almost strangle me, and without really trying, I knew instantly what it was and why I had been so angry that morning. That moist, subtle fragrance of that wildflower had reminded me of the moist and aromatic lilies and white carnations that stood near the casket of a schoolboy I had played soccer with only the week before. His name was Terry Luckasavich, and he was slightly younger than me, but like me, he loved warm, carefree weekends, if only to go fishing down by a creek behind his house that ran along the railway track. During the long weekend that had just passed, there had been a barbecue at his house. A barbecue was something I'd never heard of. I'd never seen one up close. It sounded strange, cooking raw meat over a bed of hot coals. I had no idea how someone would go about making that work, but I thought maybe someday I could figure out how to do it. I had about the same amount of curiosity in me as Terry Lukasavich. Only Terry, somehow, after he had seen somebody in his family squirt a bit of liquid firestarter on the dry, dusty charcoal, Terry thought he'd help that barbecue along. So without anyone noticing, he got hold of the bottle of liquid firestarter and squirted it towards the barbecue, already lit but showing no flames. Only I guess he held on to it for too long. Some of the red charcoal ignited and the flames quickly ran up along the stream of starter as Terry's two hands gripped that bottle of flammable liquid. At least that's what I was told by his cousin. I remember after I knelt down in front of his casket in his living room, where he was being waked, I fought back a surge of tears and knew I had to get the hell out of there before I broke down. So I ran like the dickens out of that house and ran as fast as I could towards home. Only Terry's house was about a quarter mile below St. Lawrence O'Toole's, where we both attended church. Anyway, there's a huge dip in the roadway between St. Lawrence and Terry's home, where the highway crosses the Sherwood River, really only a stream no bigger than Vickers Creek. And so, as I was running home, I ran out of breath and had to slow up as I got up the far side of the hill, closer to the church. It was then I caught up to Terry Rukuski, his cousin, and he explained how it all happened. I remember the two of us trying to keep from crying, and so after a while we just walked slowly in silence past St. Lawrence O'Toole and past the graveyard where Terry Lucky Savage was going to be buried, even though he was only 10 years old. I remember days before, during that long weekend, waiting to hear all through Sunday and Monday that he was going to be all right, but all I heard was that he was in hospital and wanted a Pepsi to cool down his insides. The day we all got back to school, everybody felt bad because we could see he wasn't there to play soccer with us. That evening, while working my paper route, I got word that he was dead. Just a kid. Just a kid. By the end of that week, I was serving on the altar at his funeral and had to go out to the graveyard and watch as they buried him. Then a day or so later, I found myself at Vickers Creek, and I had started to cry. I remember Terry and I had struck a deal the week before that long weekend— He would come out to Vickers Creek with me the next time I got to go, and I'd get to go down the tracks behind his house on his creek the next time he went fishing there. It's funny the things we carry with us for 50 years or more, as if some forgotten survival tools, a compass, a pack of matches, an old jackknife in the bottom of our rucksacks, long forgotten until something unexpected can take us back there to our childhoods, and we discover once again that our own journey, was not as catastrophic as we had one time feared. Yet it's still strange how the subtle fragrance of a wildflower can bring us to our knees, unable to fight back the tears. Nowadays I dream of riding an old bicycle to Vickers Creek to watch the summer sun rise in the east, if only to lift a shimmering mist off that unique green field where I once believed I saw the fickle hand of God. I hope that if I ever get there, if there still is a God, I'll find an immortal 10-year-old boy laughing and running through the windswept grass, fishing pole in hand, and asking me to make him a birch bark cup so he can sip something that tastes much, much better than his last Pepsi.
0: That was Vickers Creek Morning, written and read by Barry Conway. Next up is Bentley's Winchester.
1: If they are lucky, small boys grow up to be teenagers, and then, if they are luckier still, they grow up to become decent human beings. What usually makes the difference is the trouble a boy inherits or creates for himself, and how they learn to get out of that trouble by the time they stop being teenagers. I certainly got into my fair share of trouble growing up in Barry's Bay in the 1960s. Take, for instance, the time I picked up a loaded rifle and almost blew my cousin's brains out. It happened when I was about to turn 13 years of age, in the summer of 1967. I'd like to say, as Flip Wilson used to say at that time, the devil made me do it. But at the end of the day, there's nobody I can blame but myself. Still, if the truth must be known, some of the trouble started when I began to watch Hollywood movies, particularly westerns and war movies, and especially when I paid too much attention to how movies seemed to want me to believe I should be somebody I wasn't. Put another way, a steady diet of John Wayne, Audie Murphy, Joel McCrae, Randolph Scott, and Jimmy Stewart can play hell with a small boy's imagination. Pretty much in the same way comic books sometimes can change the way a young boy thinks he ought to behave. Simply put, by the time I was 12 years old, there were only two certainties I knew in life. Not death or taxes, but rather that a boy could have the most fun playing with guns, sometimes real guns. And secondly, all boys who wanted to act like men slept with one eye open and one hand on their favorite handgun or rifle. Indeed, much of our time growing up in Barry's Bay during those hot, sweltering summers of the 1960s were spent playing cowboys and Indians, or something we simply called war. We usually played those childish games in somebody else's backyard, or better still, up on Stafford Mountain or elsewhere at the edge of town, usually a hilly forest that stretched from Dowdle Murray's house to Donald Murray's home, especially near Donald's, or Duck's Place as we used to call it. It had old sheds and musty old buildings, and a huge anchor the Charlie Murray, Duck's dad, once told me came off the Titanic, and I believed him for years. It was the perfect place to kill a bad guy, even if it was only in our imaginations. As we grew older, though, some of us traded in those games of imaginary gunfire and play-acting death for real guns and real death. A lot of the boys who I had gone to school with started hunting with their fathers and uncles, who would teach them how to load, aim, and pull the trigger on a four ten shotgun and blow the brains out of a real live partridge or groundhog. Usually, they were the same boys who had parents that let them have BB or pellet guns when they were little. No such luck in my household growing up. Francis and Teresita, my parents, took a dim view towards firearms. Not exactly anti gun They had both grown up in the area and could recount every time I asked for a BB gun or a pellet gun horrendous stories of people who had been shot accidentally and not a few who died as a result. My father, when he was younger, saw it happen more than once, and it might have explained why we were one of the few households that had no guns. My father never took us hunting, and I never knew him to go hunting, though he would occasionally tell us stories of growing up on the farm near Carson Lake and going out at night to fire warning shots to keep some nosy bear or wolf at bay. Some of his older brothers were hunters who kept guns, but from my point of view, we weren't that lucky. And just when I might fire up dear old dad and get him talking about taking a pot shot at some marauding wolf, my mother would shut us both down with some comment about how dangerous guns were and how she remembered Mrs. So-and-so, or her favorite, Mrs. Jigrig, and how their brother or cousin had been accidentally shot. I never quite figured out who Mrs. Jigrig ever was, but Teresita always got her point across. No guns in the Conway household. So it wasn't like I hadn't heard of how dangerous real guns could be. But there were still those movies we saw nearly every Saturday afternoon at the Bay Theater that Mr. Germain used to show us. Twenty-five cents got you in the door with money enough left over for a treat at the concession stand. Then there was the warm-up act, usually Bugs Bunny or the Three Stooges, and then the star attraction, some shootout at the OK Corral. The best part was always after the movie when we left the Bay Theater and we'd be outdoors again and start play-acting some scenes from the movie on our way home. We'd start shooting each other with a finger and cocked thumbs, outdrawing everybody because we were the good guys, and so we never got killed. That's usually when the trouble would start. The other guys said they were the good guys, and they had drawn first. And before long, we'd trade in our pretend finger guns and start taking swings at each other with our real fists. At first, only play acting, just like in the movies. Then somebody would accidentally connect with a glass jaw, and before long, a real fight would break out. Within half an hour of the end of that movie, the boys of summer were usually all down and dirty in a nearby gutter and fighting for real like a dozen Kilkenny cats. Still, I used to dream of holding a real gun in my hand, just like Gary Cooper in High Noon or John Wayne in McClintock or or Audie Murphy in The Red Badge of Courage or especially Randolph Scott and Joel McCrae in Ride the High Country. But the chance never seemed to come, even though there were times when I got real close I'd go hunting with my Uncle MJ, my mother's brother, and strangely she didn't seem to mind when he piled three or four of her sons into his station wagon and we all headed out towards the Bark Lake Dam or up along Arborvitae Road or the Ailen Lake Road looking for partridge every fall. The best seat was up front, riding shotgun, which was exactly how it felt. There was MJ at the steering wheel, smoking cigarettes like a chimney, and... If I was lucky enough, there I was in the passenger seat, and between MG and myself, a double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun cracked open just enough to slip two shells into those barrels of blue steel lickety-split. Most times I had to sit in the back seat as one of my three older brothers got to ride shotgun. Still, I could be in the back, leaning over the front seat... And though our job was to keep an eye out for the partridge along the roadside, I rarely could take my eyes off that beautiful gun with its shiny hardwood stock and precision-engineered firing mechanism. It looked positively erotic, had I only known what erotic meant in those days. Still, I used to get upset when we saw some poor little bird along the road and MJ slammed on the brakes, butted out a cigarette, grabbed the 12-gauge, popped in two shells, and snapped both barrels shut with a click that made him look like Randolph Scott. And just as quickly he threw open his side door and in one seemingly magical liquid motion he took deadly aim, pulled the trigger, and let off a loud bang, followed shortly with a huge puff of smoke that wafted into the car with that distinctive smell of burnt gunpowder and death. It was like something out of a movie, until usually I was sent down the road to retrieve that little partridge, gasping its last, sometimes still smoking with the gunshot wounds. The trouble was, nobody I knew liked to eat partridge, so it made no sense why we were killing these birds. Once MJ dropped us off at home, my mother would have us sit in the porch and pluck the feathers off those little birds like we were doing piecework in a pillow factory. That same evening, all we'd hear at the supper table was that curious ping as we all spit shotgun pellets out from between our teeth while we tried to chew through a piece of partridge breast. In a curious way, I only ever wanted to hold a gun. I never really wanted to kill anything. Maybe pull the trigger on a clay pigeon, or following suit with a lot of local hunters. Maybe a road sign. It was amazing how many road signs in the area had been blasted through with a 12 gauge or a 410, sometimes even with a 3030 or a 308. I could never figure out why people shot at road signs. It never crossed my mind those hunters were just bored silly. No, I told myself they must have been hunting after dark with flashlights, and those flashlights went on the fritz. I didn't know then the jack lighting was illegal because I seem to hear a lot about it in the schoolyard. Indeed, a little boy hears a lot of things that he doesn't understand or is not supposed to hear in places like a schoolyard. Then again, wise men say that the Duke of Wellington beat Napoleon at Waterloo based on what he learned in the schoolyard playing on the fields of Eton. That's one of those strange things about boyhood. You're supposed to believe malarkey like that, as if the shenanigans that go on in the schoolyard have great value in turning boys into men. It's about as far-fetched as believing that movie heroes are made for small boys to emulate. Still, by the time I was 12, going on 13, I did have an unhealthy passion to hold a real gun. But as luck would have it, I knew I'd never get the chance to hold a real gun in my father's house, nor in my uncle MJ's station wagon. Still, they were my cousins, Sean and Terry Murray, and their father, Dowdle, my uncle. He was just lax enough in his child care tactics to give me some hope. He had a huge stash of guns he kept under lock and key, and that I had seen occasionally. I used to deliver the Star Weekly to Daddle's home, and one day, Sean and Terry managed to get their hands on this old, beat-up shotgun. We headed out to a place we called the Jungle Pond. It was all frozen over, so I had the bright idea that we needed to test the ice on the pond, and, being the oldest, I asked for the gun and used its stock to tap across the pond. As luck would have it, on the second or third tap, the whole thing just fell to pieces. Not the ice, the gun. The barrel fell completely off the stock. the firing mechanism dangled off the end, and everything just split in two right there in my hand. So we hightailed it back to Dell's place, laid it carefully in its case so the gun looked like it was whole again, and then we got the hell out of there as fast as we could move our desperate little feet wasn't the first time we'd had one of those horrible misfortunes that seemed to befall young lads. We'd spent a whole afternoon one summer looking at a coconut. Charlie Murray paid for a Star Weekly that week with a coconut, which I had never seen before, nor had Terry nor Sean. We just stared at it for about half an hour, trying to figure out how that brown, hairy, yet seemingly bald-headed thing could be turned into the white, shredded stuff we knew our mothers baked with. So like the stupider cousins of the Three Stooges, we finally got some hammers some screwdrivers, a crosscut saw and some augers and smashed the damn thing until we spilt all the coconut juice over ourselves and scraped out the white sweetness from inside. And then we just took off on our bikes as we usually did during those aimless summer days and went looking for more trouble. Maybe an acorn war if we could find one or a bunch of guys playing war or Fort Apache or we'd go to Steadman's to see if any new issues of Sergeant Rock or classic comics had come in or maybe we'd drop into Jason's or Stanley Pulbeski's to check out their loose candy counter collection and if we had time, do a little comparison shopping at Coolis' store, Heron's, or the Dairy Bar. That is, if there sometimes moody owners didn't put the bum's rush on us. Sometimes having fun with us by asking us if we knew that it was a federal crime to loiter around a place of business without having the price of a hotel room at the ready. We told them. We were just kids. We didn't have any money. Besides, we didn't need a hotel room. We could go home. In fact, that was how we spent most of our summers, riding around town on our bicycles, not so much looking to get into trouble, but knowing if we only helped it along a wee bit, trouble was sure to find us. And so it was, one Friday night, during the summer of 1967, when I was supposed to be sleeping in my backyard tent, I flew the coop and met up with Terry and Sean Murray and another cousin, Timmy Conway. We all grabbed our flashlights sometime after 10 o'clock and headed down along the girls' street and went jack-lighting for worms. A lot of the local resort managers paid as much as two cents per worm, and so a couple of dozen dewworms could earn a kid a couple of quarters, if not a whole silver dollar. That is, if he was the right kind of hard-working boy who had the technical know-how of finding and catching dewworms, and more importantly, preserving them overnight so they all didn't die by noon the next day. More than once, we had heard about a surefire sale that had been snuckered by dewworms that looked like they were, well, hung over the next day, But Timmy, being the brains of the operation because he was the oldest among us, had it all figured out. He knew Bentley, and Floyd Harrington Bentley was an 83-year-old resort owner who ran a small operation up on Carson Lake, just across Highway 60 from my Uncle Lorney's farm, where Timmy and I and all our Conway cousins used to hang out at least once a week and often twice a week during the summer holidays. Besides, Floyd Bentley was one of the most fascinating characters next to Charlie Murray that a boy from Barry's Bay back in the 1960s could ever know, and we certainly tried to get to know him. He and his wife Mary had bought the land he built his resort on from my grandmother, Ellen Irving, back in 1937, all seven acres. He bought another nine acres from her again in 1949, and Timmy's father, Leo, had helped Bentley build his first rental cottages way back when Moses was in diapers, and so Timmy and me, well, we thought we were pretty tight with Floyd Harrington Bentley, put another way... We knew he trusted us, and we trusted him, because, well, that's what boys who know old men who are older than Methuselah do. Besides, when he wasn't running his Carson Lake resort, he slipped south of the border and returned to the United States, where he hailed from, and where he had all sorts of wild adventures between Montana and Florida, Wyoming to Dalton, New York, where he was born back in 1884. So there was always lots to talk about with Bentley, if you could slow him down long enough to catch his drift. Not that earning Bentley's attention or trust was an easy thing to accomplish. Bentley, you see, had been long widowed. Two of his kids had died quite young, and as a widower and a grieving father, he had grown, shall we say, a bit eccentric. He mumbled to himself a lot, maybe because he could never find a pair of false teeth that fit well. And then there was his old panel truck. Its once pristine fire engine red paint job had faded to a dull, sickly, sort of pepto-bismol pink gone bad. It looked too decrepit to be called pink. It was uniquely Bentley's own branded color. Nobody else drove a vehicle like that. That truck also had Florida license plates. For Bentley, when he was not summering at his Carson Lake Resort, he was wintering in Everglades City, Florida which meant that every spring when he arrived back at Carson Lake, his old panel truck was chuck full of seashells, starfish, huge conches, bits of old fishing net, crabs, legs, crocodile teeth, and possibly a live lobster or two, all collected as part of his master plan to sell such exotic things to his unsuspecting resort guests at Carson Lake. But he never seemed to get any takers. Yet every spring, Bentley would arrive with a truckload of valuable junk that was as interesting as all get-out at least to the boys of summer. And yet it would just get piled up year after year in his house at Carson Lake that doubled as his resort office in a retail showroom. It was there that Timmy Conway had arranged we were to bring our trove of majestic night crawlers and where we fully expected to have to dicker with Bentley for an hour or two like bewildered Moroccan rug salesmen until we could get him to finally pay up. Once paid, it was then our plan to head about half a mile down the road to Camp Beveline, where we'd spend every nickel we had just earned, stuffing our faces with any kind of soda pop, potato chips, chocolate bars, licorice, popsicles, ice cream bars, or whatever treats we could afford, given our big sale of the day. I remember walking into Bentley's house around noon hour that summer, and being instantly mesmerized by the thousand and one things tacked to his living room walls spread out over tables and along sideboards and, and dangling from the ceiling. There was stuff everywhere, and none of it looked boring. It was better than a pawn shop, antique store, and dollar store all wrapped into one. Nothing had a price on it, but you just knew Bentley would unload it for next to nothing, because we all knew that nobody but a stupid kid would pay for any of that junk. Still, it was fascinating stuff. It was eye-catching, downright dazzling, but I was no easy mark. But what was that? High up over the door that opened into Bentley's kitchen, there was... there was... there was a rifle. Was that a Winchester 73, like in the movies? The kind every cowboy tucked behind his saddle and kept handy for a shootout? Could that really be what it looked like? I stepped closer as Timmy and Terry and Sean, far more entrepreneurial than I would ever be began their Moroccan dickering session with Bentley, announcing that we not only had the motherlode of the best, most athletic midnight crawlers, these were the most succulent dewworms ever collected from the well nitpicked picked near-midnight lawns of our Uncle Paddy, Uncle Michael, and Uncle Nixie, to say nothing of the few sacred dewworms we plucked from the best hunting ground in all of Barry's Bay, that is, for those with the gizzard and gumption to go after them in the dark." St. Hedwig's graveyard. Bentley looked impressed, enough to stop mumbling, but he was, after all, an American. He'd have to verify his purchase and wanted to examine each and every worm for quality, liveliness, and overall agility. Not interested in no deadbeats, he said, chewing something caught in his false teeth and looking like a cross between Alistair Sims from A Christmas Carol and Barry Fitzgerald from The Bells of St. Mary. I'll take them out into the kitchen, where there's better light, and see what they're really worth. Truer statement was never spoken. I couldn't spot any windows that let in any real daylight in that living room, though I knew there would have to be windows somewhere behind those wall hangings and things that hung down from the ceiling. Mind if I look at your Winchester? I said, surprising myself at my adult-like assertiveness, as well as shocking my traveling companions who, who had not yet spotted the rifle amidst all the living room junk. Bentley stopped in his tracks dead center in the doorway, right under the Winchester, he thought for a moment. And then absentmindedly, he just reached up and handed it to me. Sure, why not? He was a man who had worked with dynamite a good part of his working life. What possibly could go wrong? And over the next five minutes, while Bentley sat at his kitchen table, picking over the dewworms, performing his due diligence, he also tried to clear more space at that table. Like the rest of his house, that table was more a launch pad for pots, pans, dishes, cutlery, cereal boxes, paint cans, and a thousand and one other things useful to an old widower who had to eat on the run, but also had to be his own handyman, keeping his one-man resort running occasionally like a well-oiled machine. I held it like a father might hold his firstborn. It was the first real gun I ever held, discounting that old relic that fell apart at the jungle pond. Where Timmy was, I can't say. From that moment on, I only remember Sean and me and the Winchester. Mimicking my cousin's actions, I pulled back the hammer and pulled the trigger and pointed it at Sean's head and then heard the click of the firing mechanism. Again, nothing happened. I probably whispered pow" like it was some comic book scene. But for the life of me, I can't remember any sound from the moment I held that Winchester in my sweaty palms. I then dropped the barrel to the floor And for some reason, I decided to test the lever action. Nobody had done that yet. I didn't know if it was a real repeater rifle or not, but it did have an elongated lever under the trigger. So I worked it down and then back up again, hearing the click, click, click of the loading chamber, and then placed the lever back snug along the trigger. I don't know why I did what I did next, but instead of lifting the barrel and pointing it at Sean's head, as I had just done before I cocked the lever action, I pulled the trigger, with the barrel still pointed towards the wooden living room floor. I don't actually remember the gun going off, at least not the sound of its report, nor did my feet feel the bullet tear through the wooden floorboards and bury itself somewhere in the earth below. I only remember two things, the absolute look of horror in Sean's eyes and the sound of Bentley, jumping up and next standing in the kitchen doorway, his hands full of dew worms, waving them over his head and yelling at me at the top of his old voice, his false teeth nearly falling out. You come into a man's house, you pick up a man's gun, and you fire a bullet through a goddamn man's floor. He then ripped the gun out of my hands, worms flying everywhere. The next thing I knew, I was riding my bicycle past Camp Beveline before stopping further down the road to throw up in the ditch. I don't remember if we got paid or what happened to timmy i only remember terry on his bike behind me laughing a strange giddy sort of laugh like he didn't mean it but it was all he could do to handle the thoroughly out of control moment at bentley's sean lagged behind on his bike saying nothing but every time i turned around to look for him i remember feeling a peculiar nausea something i would not feel for another ten years ...when I first started working aboard a Coast Guard ship in the Pacific Northwest... ...and I got terribly seasick for the very first time in my life. I don't think I ever told my parents what had happened. I don't think my mother ever found out. But I find it hard to believe that my father didn't eventually find out. Still, he never mentioned it to me. Maybe he just figured I finally learned my lesson. For the next 15 or so years, I couldn't look Sean Murray in the eye. Nor could he me. We both knew what I had done, or nearly done... And it was just too much to bear for either one of us to ever want to talk about it ever again. We carried on as if it never happened. And so long as we didn't look at each other eye to eye, we could carry on with that lie. About 15 years after, I most certainly would have killed my cousin had I not pulled the trigger when I did. Sean was killed in a car accident late one night near Maynooth. He was 27 years old. I only remember seeing Ginger Jones and Judy Whalen, two of Sean's best high school friends, both coming out of the funeral home crying the way I wanted to cry. Still, years later, I came across an old newspaper clipping about something that once happened in Madawaska in 1950. It was a hunting accident involving Alex Yankovich, who had been the same age at that time as I, was, as I was the summer I nearly shot and killed my cousin. Alex had done what I had feared. When he was 13, he pulled the trigger on his good friend, Teddy Rose. Only Alex wasn't as lucky as I was. His friend died, and a few years later... Alex himself drowned in the Upiongo River along with his father. That double tragedy was enough to force his widowed mother and what remained of her family to leave Madawaska and resettle in a house, ironically, across the street from where I grew up in Barry's Bay. My mother and father never told me about the Yankovich tragedy. They must have known about it, but for some reason, they said nothing. I only remember during the rest of that summer in 1967 when I couldn't sleep at night. I'd often sit by my upstairs bedroom window and look out across the street and wonder why, in the moonlight, the Yankovich house looked so sad and lonely.
0: That was Bentley's Winchester, written and read by Barry Conway. Time now for a short break. You might even have time to take your pop bottles back to the store or check the backyard for a dozen dewworms. See you back here shortly.